Sorry, I was getting really anxious to get up here and preach. And so, amen. Pastor, thank you so very much for the opportunity to be able to preach. I can't tell you how nice it is to be able to be behind a pulpit again. Whenever uh, the, about mid-September gets around, uh, we start what we call a mission season. And that's where we go almost back-to-back missions conferences almost every single week. In fact, uh, when October hit, the very first week that we were, the uh, very first week of October, we started Sunday in Texas. And when we finished that conference Tuesday night, we boarded a plane right after that conference to fly to Michigan and start a conference Wednesday night all the way to Sunday night. And then flew back to get in the car to drive to Albuquerque to start a missions conference for one night, drive back to Texas to be in another missions conference from Sunday to Wednesday. And then after, um, after that conference, we got in the car and drove 12 hours to Georgia and started a conference from Thursday to Sunday. And so we start a pretty packed season uh, where it's just almost back-to-back missions conferences. And so normally in missions conferences, they have a keynote speaker, so someone else is preaching. So I'm sitting in the pew, bouncing my knee, just wishing I could get up there to the pulpit. So I can't tell you how nice it is to be able to be back behind the pulpit to preach. So, Pastor, I really appreciate you letting me be able to come to your desk and be able to preach. And uh, I thank you for hosting us, giving us a nice hotel. We love that hotel. If you ever walked in the middle of that hotel, it's really nice. you got the Longhorn right there at the front of it. It's a really nice hotel. We appreciate that and all the meals. You all have really made us feel like we're at home. I don't know if you can get that from the way that I'm up here right now. I really feel like I'm at home. I've gotten to know some of you and be able to speak to you all. And I'm very thankful for a church that has come up to me even before I came to the pulpit and asked me questions about Japan. They showed interest into our ministry. I'm really appreciative of that. Thank you so very much. Um, now, if you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 1. I'm going to talk a little bit about more about my calling to Japan. Uh, Pastor, it's going to seem like I'm waxing eloquent on my introduction. But really, I'm just going to share with you all the testimony because it's I have been bouncing back and forth between two different messages all day. And I've said it many times to my wife today as I wasn't too sure what exactly the Lord wanted me to preach. And the very last thing preacher said up here at the pulpit assured me what I'm preaching. The title of my message tonight is Why I Love My Home Church. Why I Love My Home Church. And so uh, just a little testimony of my background in a sense. Like Pastor said, I grew up in, a, in the bus ministry, and I didn't necessarily get started in the bus ministry necessarily. Uh, due to... Um, some family difficulties in a sense, I'll leave it at that. I do some family difficulties. My brother had uh, gotten into a lot of trouble, and my dad was kind of giving up on parenting. Uh, he, felt, he just felt as if uh, everything he's trying just wasn't working for us kids. We're wanting to do whatever we wanted to do in our lives. And so he just determined that, you know, if I can't fix the kids, maybe I'll get them in a church. Maybe Jesus can fix the kids. And so my neighbors just so happened to go to Joshua Baptist Church, and so uh, they invited us out, and we went there for about a month. My dad immediately got plugged in. Uh, in fact, after a month, he threw a barbecue for the entire church. Now, my home church is about five, 600 people, so you can imagine trying to cram that many people into a double-wide trailer. It doesn't really work. We had a line going in the front door and a line going out the back door. And so uh, it was a lot of brisket, too. It was, it was great. And so, uh, but after about a month after he held that meeting, as an unsaved person trying to get really involved in a church, he just got really burnt out pretty quick. And uh, he just determined that he wasn't going to go back to church anymore. It just wasn't working. The kids were acting the same. The kids were still unruly, weren't doing what he was hoping they would do. So he decided he wasn't going to go back. Well, me, I fell in love with church. They loved me. They cared for me. 
And it wasn't just the bus workers. In a sense, we all the teenagers sat over here on this side of the room, but it wasn't as if they didn't care at all. The members over here would come and sit over with us bus kids when we get there so they can spend time with us getting to know us a little bit. I remember one guy, in a sense, he came up to me, and back when I was a really young kid, just now starting to ride the bus ministry, had really long hair, in a sense. And one guy in the church would come up to me and say, hey, when are you going to cut that hair? And he'd do that every single I cut the hair because he wouldn't stop telling me I needed to cut my hair. <laughs> and so, I mean, they would come over and spend time with us, get to know us, and do all kinds of great things. And um, I fell in love with the fact that I can come up there and memorize John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept, and they'd dump a bucket of candy on me. That's, that's one of the great things about children's ministries. You know, you just bring them to church. They'll dump a bucket of candy on your kid and send them, send them home all sugared up and everything like that. I loved it because they loved me. And I wanted to go back, and it just so happened that the weekend that my dad decided he wasn't going to go back, a bus captain knocked on our door and invited us out. You know, praise the Lord for members that are willing to say, you know what, I'm not going to sit in a pew and wait for uh, unsaved people to come to church. I'm going to go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. And if it wasn't for somebody doing that, I would not be here. And so they came, they went, they, they're out there knocking doors and invited us and said, hey, you know, if, if you're not able to come, uh, come by to church, would you mind if your kids come by? We can drive over here, we'll pick them up and take them every Sunday. So I started coming, and I slowly started to grow, started to read my Bible a little bit more, and started to uh, really participate a little bit more in church. I talked to one of our youth workers, and they'd come by and pick me up every Sunday night and Wednesday night and take me to church. And His name is Luke Taylor. He's actually a chiropractor and a, and a science teacher at the same time. And uh, He would come by every single time we had an activity, a church service, anything. He would always come by and, in a sense, be like a spiritual father to me and bring me to church and teach me a lot. And I'm very grateful for him. And, as uh, he would bring me to church, I remember being there for a Sunday school lesson that we were, at the time, we were busing all the kids in for Sunday school. And at the end of it, my youth pastor challenged the, uh, the group, the young teenagers, uh, to consider ministry before considering another job. He was shocked that in his day and age, he remembered that whenever uh, the youth would come to church, the very first thing they would be considering was when they came down to the altar, they're begging God, God, if you want me in ministry, I'll, I'll go. If you want me to uh, surrender my life to preach, or you want me to be a missionary, or teach in a Christian school, or whatever you want me to be, I'm willing to do that. I'm asking you, please show me what your will is before I start seeking other avenues. They had a heart to serve in ministry before becoming a doctor or a police officer, all this. They wanted to see what God wanted them to do. And he was burdened for the fact that there was only one young person that was called to preach and willing to preach inside of our preaching contest in the summer camp. And we bowed our head to pray after the end of that, and he's weeping, wanting to see people surrender their lives to preach. And he asked them if any of them would love to uh, preach in the contest. And I raised my hand, not because I really wanted to preach. I just don't like it when a guy's crying. Uh, I just I can't stand it when people cry. My, if my son starts crying or something like that as a baby, it doesn't bother me. When he gets older and he knows how to push buttons or something like that, I'm just going to have to just walk away and just not deal with it or something. But I raised my hand, told him I'd preach. Now, I went there and I preached. Uh, Pastor, I preached on the entire Sermon on the Mount in five minutes. Covered it all and failed terribly. I was last place. I did terrible in that contest. But that Thursday, somebody stood up and shared their testimony. Not, a, not the Romans Road. Nothing else like that. They just shared their testimony about what God had done in their life, and that made me want what they had. I didn't have it. So I bowed my knee and accepted Christ as my Savior that night on June 16, 2006, on the fifth row back on the left side, second seat from the end. And so I remember that very vividly. I love uh, thinking about the day that I got saved. And, uh, well, after I got saved and went back to my, got back into my life in a sense, got back and going to school and got, got around the same friends, I started to fall back into the same lifestyle that I was living even before I was saved. There was just something different. There was something inside of me telling me what I was doing was wrong. 
And so I, I followed that for a couple of years, and then I uh, started to think, you know, God's called me to preach. I know he's called me to preach. I know he wants me to do that. He had, he had assured me of that the day that I got saved. And I was wondering, what was, what was I going to do for, for school or anything like that, Bible college or anything like that? So I went and talked to my pastor, and long story short, I went to West Coast Baptist College uh, in the year 2009. And uh, at my, my freshman year, there was a message I was preaching on living a double life. So I determined that I was not going to live a double life anymore. I, I got rid of all the friends that I had, all the bad influences in my life, and surrendered my life over, saying, God, whatever you want me to do with my life, I'm willing to do it. And from that day on, there was one thing that stuck out to me more than anything, and that was the topic of missions. I could not get it out of my mind. I love talking to missionaries. I, in fact, I, Dr. Sisk, when he would teach there about one semester throughout the year, I would want to go up to his office and just ask him questions about it. I, I never understood why at my home church, within a 30-minute uh, radius, there are 65 independent Baptist churches, yet there can be a city like downtown Tokyo, not the whole Tokyo area. The whole Tokyo area is 36 million. But the downtown Tokyo area has 9 million people, and there's only one Bible-preaching church. And then, and then you look at the, the entire prefecture that me and my wife are going through, the Tohoku prefecture. If you look from Sendai up, there's 7.3 million people and only two Bible-preaching churches. To me, it, ne- it didn't make any sense. Why would I want to go start a church right around my, my, my home church or somewhere around there? Why not go to a place where they don't have a church? And I just, I just could not get enough of that to the point where in my young Christian, Christian self, I was telling God what his will was for me. That's where I'm going. I'm going to a place where there's not a single church. In my ignorance, I did not know that you cannot tell God what his will is for your life. And so I was confused. So I got on my knees and took some advice uh, from a, a f- former MK to Romania. He now teaches on staff out there. And I asked him, hey, how do you know for sure God's calling you to a country? Does God divinely come down from heaven and sit upon a cloud and announce to you what country he wants you to be a missionary to? How does he do all that? And he said, well, James, it's different for everybody. This is what you can do. Get on your knees and ask God to make it as clear as a, someone throwing a boulder at you. Now, if you get to know me at all, when you give me a vivid picture like someone throwing a boulder at somebody, that's what's going on in my head. And so I went and... Uh, jokingly prayed that exact same prayer, in a sense, but, for, but honestly asking God to make it as clear as somebody throwing a boulder at me. Well, without me knowing, Dr. Sisk was scheduled to preach in the next service, in chapel. And I was excited. I had not really known too much about Dr. Sisk outside the fact that he was a missionary in Japan. And so I had, uh, went there and I sat up in what we call the freshman front of Bible college. Why? Because every freshman, for some reason, crowded the front row because... It was as if they were just so much more spiritual than everybody else in the college, in a sense. They just wanted the front row. And so uh, I sat up there, and I was over off, off here to the right, and I pulled out my little note-taker's journal and was writing his name down. And he opened his Bible up to the very text I had been studying the night before, Acts chapter 16 on the Macedonian call. So as he's reading his text, I'm kind of going through it in my mind as I'm writing down his name and the date and all that in my note-taker's journal. And after he finishes reading his text, he looked up from the pulpit and looked right in my direction and said, what would keep you from coming to Japan? Now understand, I had been, I'm not sure if I told you this, before, the night before I was praying specifically for the country of Japan. In my dorm, there was eight other guides that were called to Japan. And I loved picking their mind. I was telling God, God, I want to go to Japan. Would you please just, I want to go there. And if you don't want me there, just close the door. And it was kind of like that boulder that I needed whenever he said that right in my direction. So much where my friend across in the auditorium knew where God was calling me to preach. 
After the end of that service, I got on my knees and I surrendered my life to go to the country of Japan. He said, Brother James, what does any of that have to do with why you love your home church? It's what I mentioned right at the very beginning of the past, or very beginning of this entire testimony that I shared with you. If it wasn't for someone going out into the street and knocking on my door and inviting me to ride on the buses, I would not be here right now. If it was not all that stuff I just got done telling you in the past 10 minutes, none of that would have ever happened if it wasn't for somebody saying, you know what, my life is not so important to where I can't separate a little bit of time to go out and tell people about Jesus. My life is not so significant that I can't say, you know what, God, I, 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 can't, I can't budget any time in my day. I'm so packed. I can't separate any time. I can't go out there and tell people, but you know what, I can probably you know, invite them or something like that and let, you know, let pastor share the gospel or something like that. I, I don't have enough time. What I love about my home church was they exemplified what we, at least in missions, called the Great Commission. And what I want to look at, look here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what I want to look here inside this passage is how Christ, sa- Christ says the church ought to treat the Great Commission, how we ought to do the Great Commission. Look with me in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. The Bible says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. See, number one, what I, what I want to point out is that we ought to fix our position in the Great Commission. So what do you mean by, by your position? See, wouldn't it be very unique for me to go all the way over to Japan and be a missionary there and share the gospel with all the people that are over there if I had not accepted Christ as my Savior myself? I'd be getting, getting the cart before the horse in a sense. I ought to, I ought to have had a time in my life where I, re, I realized that the Bible said in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. That means every person... Uh, here on this earth is a sinner, whether, whether a priest, pope, or, or a president, whoever it may be, we are all sinners before God. And the Bible says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. We are all, because we have sinned against the Holy God, rightly deserving to go to a place called hell. Rightly deserving of it. That means me, my wife, my young son. We are all worthy of a place called hell. Aren't you glad that's not where it stops? The Bible says, For the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Aren't you glad today that you can know for sure that you can be on your way to heaven when you die? And that not only, not only is your eternal life secure, but you have a God that's willing to live with you day by day. I here the past couple of days, I've been reading in uh, the book of Luke in my devotions, and I was really glad to be able to see how Christ was willing to take care of diseases and take care of all the demon-possessed people and all these different things. But then he goes over and he helps people in their day-to-day life when it comes to the story of fishing with Simon. Christ cares about every little thing that goes on in our life. And he, came, he, wants us, and he wants us to be able to call out to him and be able to worship and be able to praise him. He wants us to be active in that. See, I didn't just share the gospel with you because necessarily I wanted someone here to get saved. I understand on a Sunday night, the likelihood of everyone in here being saved is, is really great. And so I didn't necessarily share the gospel with you to see it necessarily, to see someone saved. Now, if you're not saved, today would be the best day for you to accept Christ as your Savior. But I shared that for everyone that was saved. Because here's my question. Has that drawn you to do anything for Christ? 
We sang that song before we got up here, I Surrender All. Every time I hear that song, that's a, it burdens me to think about, is there an area in my life where I have not surrendered my life to Christ? We sing, uh, Bringing in the Sheaves. Am I personally actively bringing in the sheaves? Have we really said, you know what, Christ, you did so much for me. You are willing to die for my sin. Am I willing to live for you? Christ died for me. Am I willing to live for him? See, it ought to fix our position in the Great Commission. It ought to say, you know what, if Christ was willing to do so much for me, I ought to be willing to get up out of my pew and be able to serve. God didn't save us to sit. He saved us to serve him. He saved us to get the gospel out to this entire world. Think about, think about this idea. Why didn't Christ, or why didn't God, after we get saved, just take us to heaven? We're saved. If he did not want us doing something down here on earth, why didn't he just take us up? Well, the reason is because he has something down here that he wants us to be taken care of. And it's not necessarily your job or your hobby or anything like that. He wants us actively on a day-to-day basis trying to get the gospel out to every person we possibly can. See, our local church, our, our, our church ought to help us in our position in the Great Commission. Number two, it ought to help us in our participation in the Great Commission. Look with me here in verse, verse 8. It says, but ye, understand, that's talking to people that are saved. His disciples, people that have accepted him. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in, say the next word with me, Jerusalem. Now I understand, we're not in Jerusalem today, okay? Well, what it means by Jerusalem here is their local area. See, what I'm trying to show you here is there is a process here inside this verse, okay? It ought to fix our position in the Great Commission. But then it ought to fix our participation in the Great Commission. See, as you read throughout Scripture, you notice that many times, whenever Christ shared the gospel and somebody's life was changed, what do you find them immediately doing? Going off and tell, telling people. I think about the woman at the well. Most of y'all know that story. You can you visually picture inside your head. When she woke up that morning, she did not know what was going to happen later on that day. But long story short, after she gets to that well and she meets Christ and, and they start discussing things, what do you find her doing after she leaves Christ? She starts running off and telling, telling people about this man who knew all about her. Think about the maniac of Gadara. Obviously, he did not wake up that morning knowing what was going to take place later on that day. And Christ shows up on the shore, and they meet there, and, and uh, he casts out the demons out of him. And what do you find him wanting to do? He comes up to Christ and says, Christ, I want to follow you. And we have to have that same attitude ourselves. Whenever Christ does something great in our lives, we, it should draw us to want to follow Christ even more in our life. But this is what Christ said. Go back to your hometown and tell people about what happened to you. And what do you find him faithfully doing? Going and telling people. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? Personally. Understand, the Great Commission is given to the local church, but who is the local church? Is this building the local church? No, it is the people that are the church. God has given that Great Commission to every single person. That means he looks down at my wife and says, Rebecca Scott, I want you to reach the 7.3 billion people here on this earth. Go. He looks down at pastor and says, Pastor, I want you to reach the 7.3 billion people here on this earth. Go. That's a pretty daunting task when you think about it, right? Because there's people being born and people are dying all across this world on a regular basis. So, Pastor, he knows that the Lord has him here. This is where God's will is for him here, right? Are we still in Texas? Okay, sorry, deputation. I'm forgetting what state I'm in half the time. And so, God has him faithfully serving right here in Texas, okay? But what is happening over in China? People are dying. 
and on their way to hell. Now understand, God has called pastor to reach the people right here in Pampa, Texas, just as much as he's called, called him to reach the people over there in China. He wants us to reach the world with the Great Commission, or with the Gospel. So what about the people over in Japan, people over in India, people over all over the place, all, all across this world? Are we actually participating in getting the Gospel to this world? Let me give an illustration, so we draw it home, okay? I actually had this illustration here at the beginning of the passage, but I thought my testimony would be a better fit for it. Let's say, if you can imagine with me, there are flags hung all across this auditorium from every single country here in this world. I believe there's about 295 churches, or 295 countries in this entire world. So imagine we have flags all across this auditorium hanging there. And then this is going to be a little bit unique, but I want you to imagine that there's a water faucet underneath each one of those flags. And pastors immediately thinking about all the damage that can be done on the floor if there's that many water faucets inside the auditorium. Imagine me going up to each one of them and just turning them on to where they just drip just a little bit. And that's it. Just a little bit. And then I look at my wife and I say, uh, Rebecca, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to give you a bucket. And I don't want you to let one drop of water touch the floor. Not one. Go. And so let's say she, she actually starts walking by, and, and for a second, when you really think about it, it doesn't seem like it's that hard. They're dripping. She could just walk down across these walls, and she can hold the bucket, and really she could just look at it and see if it's about to drip and just catch it. But understand, she doesn't know which faucet is going to drop. She doesn't know if it's going to be over here underneath the American flag or if it's going to be over there underneath the Japan flag. It could be over underneath the uh, Chile flag, the Nicaragua flag, the Dominican Republic flag. It can be anywhere. She has no idea where it's going to drop, and she has about one second to get to the next drop. That's about it. You see, Brother James, why does she only have one second? Because let's say that every drop of water represents one soul, and if it hits the floor, it's in hell. If she catches it, it's saved. It's on its way to heaven. Hits the floor... Bound for a place called hell. Every second that goes by, another soul slips into eternity. Another person has died. And look at the statistics. The possibility of them on their way to hell is very high. That's a pretty daunting task for me to ask my wife, isn't it? Wouldn't it be a lot, a lot easier if she was able to get some help in the matter, let's say she came by and she recruited one of these guys that are over here saying, hey, I need some help. Uh, you're tall. You're very, very tall. You are really tall. And so I'm going to give you a bucket. Can you help me out? I'm going to stand over here on this side. Can you stand over here? She gets some help. Now, understand, there's two people. A better chance of, of, of making sure that not a drop of water falls on the floor. But wouldn't it be a whole lot easier if this entire auditorium was working right underneath this flag right over here in America? That way when a pastor's bucket is full, he can run it outside and pour it in a pool or something like that, and the next person can stop right underneath. Do you think there would be a drop of water that would hit the floor if everybody here in this auditorium was standing right underneath that American flag holding their buckets? That is why every person in this church ought to be actively participating in the Great Commission. The Bible says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded unto you, and lo, I am with you always. God wanted each person 
Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He wants everybody in here to, to understand that the Great Commission is not just for people that serve in ministry. It is for every person that has accepted Christ. A missionary is a person that has Christ in their heart. A mission field is a person that has not accepted Christ at all. Missions is not about crossing a sea. It's about crossing a street. It's simply just trying to get the gospel to whomever you come in contact with. It could be the cashier at Walmart. It can be, be a relative. It could be whoever it is. God wants us actively trying to get the gospel to every creature. See, not only should, not only should your home church help you in your position in the Great Commission, or it does help you in your position, not only does it help you in your participation, it should also help you permeate the Great Commission. You say, Brother James, why are you using the word permeate? I needed another letter P word for my alliteration. I'm not that educated, so I had to go to the dictionary in a sense and find another letter P word. Uh, just just humor, humor me for a second for the word permeate, okay? How many of you thoroughly enjoy a classic peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Okay. Always, always I get adults' hands going up first before kids' hands go up. Why? Because I'm convinced that as you get older, your peanut butter and jelly sandwich evolves with you in a sense. Because how you do it is no longer the old stale bread or, you know, the, the butt ends of the, of, the, of the loaf or something like that with the old leftover peanut butter where you've got to pour out the juice that's on top of your peanut butter in a sense before you make it. It's no longer like that. Let me ask you a question. How many of you enjoy it when people make you a sandwich and take a scoopful of peanut butter and dump it right in the middle of the bread? Put it right on one side and then hand it to you. That way you take one bite, you get a mouthful of jelly, and you're like, great, it's Tastes like sugar. It's great. It's fantastic. Take another bite, another mouthful of jelly. Take your third bite, and you're chewing on it for the next hour because you can't get it to go down, in a sense. Nobody likes that, okay? I know it's kind of a kiddish illustration. I understand. But how do we really like it? Spread out. Covering every corner. Making sure that there's not a piece on that bread that you can see anymore so much where when you pick up the sandwich, you're trying to do this number, getting the, licking the peanut butter off your hand kind of business. You cover every corner of it. And that is exactly what our Heavenly Father wants each and every one of us to do with the gospel. He doesn't want a single person not hearing the gospel. Understand, when you hear those statistics that I gave you about Japan, where there's 127 million people, the 11th largest population in the entire world, and where you can go to downtown Tokyo with 9 million people and only one church, entire prefecture where there's only two small churches, for the fact that 99.5% of Japan is completely unreached, and majority of Japan is is not even engaged with the gospel, what does that do in our heart? Does that burden us for those people? Does that make us, because getting the gospel out to this world is our number one priority in life, and it, it burdens us, we want to get the gospel over to them, what does that drive us to want to do? Does it drive us to want to partner with somebody to be able to get the gospel while they're two there? Does it drive us to want to surrender our lives to go over there and share it with somebody? That there's nobody there in the city? Hey, I know John 3.16. I can go there and that's better than what they have right now. Is it burdening us? Are we wanting to see people saved more than going fishing? Are we wanting to see people saved more than going to shoot our next deer? For the majority of us, we never shoot a deer anyways when we go hunting. We just get little stubs or something like that. That's all we pretty much get. What does that make you want to do? See, my wife, I challenged her to be able to make sure that not a drop of water hit the floor. But if she wasn't burdened about making sure a drop never hit the floor, 
What does it matter? Why should she care? Why should she not just stand over here underneath the American flag and hold her bucket? Well, I know the drop fell over there, but I'm here. I can, I can take care of it over here. I'll just take care of where I'm at, and that's it. God didn't call her just to take care of America. God said the world is what I want you to reach. Say, Brother James, why should I care? Well, see, your home church helps you in your position. It helps you in your participation. It helps you permeate, but also helps you profit in the Great Commission. You see, brother, I'm not saying profit in a, in a kind of a materialistic way. That's not what I'm saying. But one day, when you get to heaven, you'll stand before Christ. I can't say that without smiling. Because it's going to be a glorious day where sin is done away with. Satan, his demons, are cast into hell and into the lake of fire for, etern- for the rest of eternity. But we'll stand before Christ. And some of us may even look to him saying, you know, Christ, I did my best in my own local area. I tried to get the gospel out to my family and my friends. I tried doing things like that. And I, I got, God, I gave some money towards missions. And I, I really don't feel like I did very much. I prayed every once in a while for a missionary. And I, I really don't feel like I did very much for you. Christ will say, hey, why don't you turn around? And you'll see some faces from China. And you can look back and say, God, I don't know why. Why are they saying thank you to me? I didn't really do anything for them. Why, why, why are they saying thank you to me? And he'll look at you and say, you know what? You dropped that $5 bill on that offering plate. And although you thought a $5 bill on an offering plate was very insignificant, and you never really saw that money ever again, and you had no idea what happened to that money, your pastor faithfully sent that over to a missionary. Purchased a little, a little a Chinese Bible. And a man had the opportunity of taking that Bible and sharing the gospel with that Chinese man. And that man is now in heaven for the rest of eternity in a place where you could possibly see him for the rest of eternity because of a $5 bill you dropped on a plate before. You look by and you'll see some people from Thailand, Nicaragua, Mexico, all saying thank you. Why? Because down here on earth you said, you know what, that extra soda in the morning... It doesn't matter as much as getting the gospel over to those people. That extra Starbucks drink, Starbucks doesn't even taste good. Just get some Folgers or something like that. Just get some good coffee or so. That coffee doesn't matter as much as seeing the people over in Japan saved or seeing people over in China saved or seeing people over in Korea saved or Mexico. I'm willing to say, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice a little bit in my life. Really, it's not even too much of a sacrifice. It's just a cup of coffee. I'm willing to deny myself to supply something for Christ. I won't say, you know, the rest of eternity, looking out and seeing people there saying thank you to me for the rest of eternity means a lot more to me than that three hours out on the lake. So the question is, do we have that desire to profit? And if you do, you won't sit in the pew. You'll grab your bucket. And you'll go over to those faucets and you'll hold your bucket. And you'll partner with people to make sure that there's somebody underneath every single bucket all across this world holding their bucket faithfully, seeing soul saved. So one day in heaven... Right down here, you'll be able to see what, God, what, through your influence, through your surrender, through your giving, through your prayer, through all that, for the rest of eternity, you'll be able to see what Christ has done in their lives because of what you did. Are you willing to say, today, I'm going to become more active than I've ever been in the area of missions? Let's go and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us the opportunity to be able to be in church. 
Lord, you didn't have to, in a sense, give us a place called church. You didn't have to give us the opportunity of prayer, but you have blessed us so much where we can come before you, come into a congregation where we can fervently pray. Thank you for things, but you also blessed us with a great commission. May we be faithful, since we have the cure, in a sense, for sin, not to just stick it in our pocket and hold to ourselves, but say, you know what? This world needs the cure. I'm willing to go and give it to them. They'll see souls say, so one day in heaven, it'll be even sweeter. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Pastor?